could introduce yourself and Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm Elizabeth Spaulding, and I'm a lifelong academic, and I'm chairman of the board of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, and I'm also the founding director of the Victims of Communism Museum, which is a major project of our foundation. Hmm. Can you share the story behind the establishment of the Memorial Foundation? What led to its creation and why? Yes. So we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the legislation that put VOC into existence. That that was December of um, 1993. Um, and it comes about <laughs> from something that's very unusual, a unanimous act of Congress. And so uh, many were forgetting that uh, there had been a Cold War, uh, and some in Congress and, and also the founders of VOC uh, said that people were forgetting about uh, those who had been killed by communism and were still being uh, killed by communism. So this was sometimes referred to as the other Holocaust that hadn't been as well uh, taught about and understood. And so uh, the, the idea was that you would have a nonprofit organization um, which ends up being called the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, to do several things. One thing was to to build a memorial on on uh, federal parkland and uh, have people be able to come to that and and learn, but also see something that would 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 always be visible and and translate. Uh, and then do educational programs. And then the third thing was to uh, work toward a museum. From the start, VOC's founders, though, did not want federal monies. And in order to get the unanimous act of Congress, there were plenty in Congress at the time who, although they were all supportive of the project, didn't want to give federal monies toward it. So the first half of VOC's existence, the first 15 years, was really raising money for the memorial and starting in a preliminary way, various educational programming, including uh, seminars. And then the the second half of its existence has been building money toward the, the Jewel Box Museum we now have at McPherson Square and increasing and enhancing and deepening what we do, including adding the, the curriculum that we're working on and then the witness project videos and other things that we do. And all of that has really taken these three decades and so it's amazing to think about how something that started with people forgetting and, and the necessity of remembering and the inspiration of course from what had already happened with the holocaust museum that now people would be learning about and, and still need to be learning about the victims of communism this is in dc right and so the, the and there there Correct. is a memorial can you please explain the this the symbolic significance of the memorial yes so the, the memorial is on a, a piece of federal land at New Jersey and Massachusetts Avenues, in, just down from Union Station, a couple of blocks in, in Washington, D.C. And the memorial itself is inspired by the goddess of democracy. 
And and for those who don't know, the goddess of democracy was made out of paper mache put up by students in sections in Tiananmen Square at the at what ended up being the height of the various protests that were going around uh, going on in in the People's Republic of China, including in Beijing, um, summer 1989, and it crescendoed on June 4th with the um, crackdown in which the the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army, you know, put it down, including using tanks. And many have tried to say that it was only a small number that were killed in that or otherwise harmed. But if you look and you talk to people who were there and look at the data, it looks as if it was thousands that were killed that day. And of course, it was a major act of repression that many many remember but current generations don't know about and and other people don't know about so when we were and i wasn't on the board all that time ago but i i was involved uh with voc already and so when people were talking about what the memorial should look like we were trying to think of something that would be both capturing the the positive part that the human spirit resists against violence against repression against totalitarianism against communism that there's something innate in human beings and then also that it would be something that would show what the communists do the great lengths they go to to crush to put things down to keep their regime and system to keep the party and the state going and so the goddess of democracy emerged uh, or the the way our sculptor rendered her emerged as something that we thought captured both elements that we were trying to convey and also showed that it was something that was still ongoing because of course you know something like the berlin wall was a contender but we wanted something that would show that there's been a lot of progress but that you still have to remember that communism is around and is still repressing people Mm. Yeah, I encourage listeners to, to maybe go online and or go down to it if they're in D.C. It's beautiful, a sculpture. It's vaguely reminiscent of the Statue of Liberty, although I, I, I understand that that wasn't actually intentional. That's right. The Some of the students in Tiananmen Square, those who had designed the Goddess of Democracy, they themselves were inspired by the Statue of Liberty. Mm. And so the sculptor then for VOC saw that and you know, took the inspiration from both. And it reminds me a little bit, this is getting slightly off, but have you heard the Patria or seen seen and heard the Patria Vida video by Cuban dissidents? No, no. Oh, gosh, yeah, go look at that. It's amazing. But they are inspired not only by, you know, they've been repressed for 60 years by the communists in Cuba and they want to get out from under, but they actually uh, show a picture of George Washington in their video it's it's a video that's put together by contemporary artists including hip-hop and rappers and and people who are you know really au courant in cuba and in music and so the inspiration is there you know from what's the oldest liberal democracy what's the oldest place that understands what freedom is really about and has the rule of law and everything that we're based on in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And so even though the Chinese communists back on that for Tiananmen Square, even though they had tried to crack down for a long time and not have their students know, they you know, students had figured out some things, they had gotten some information. And this was part of why they took that inspiration from the Statue of Liberty to make their goddess of democracy. 
Interesting. I will look for that video. And so what are some projects that you've worked on, uh, like video projects or interview projects, things of that nature? We have our Witness Project video series. These are mini documentaries. They're usually about maybe 9 to, to 12 minutes or so. Um, and they are the story um, of a person who, who escaped, who got away from communism, who fought it who um, has, has then um, their remarkable life or, and maybe also testimony about others they know or knew um, to share. And we have found uh, that uh, everybody, but especially students, benefit from the stories directly from the people most affected. At the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, we are about all of the victims of communism. So our witness project videos also reflect that. And so somebody can go and find a video on somebody who came from, you know, the Soviet Union or who came from some uh, one of the countries in Eastern or Central Europe or from North Korea or from Cuba or from China. I mean, we, we just make sure we're, we're covering the map. And we, we are a nonprofit, so we would always welcome more donations. But we are speeding up our. We got we got a, a grant recently that has allowed us to speed up some of our um, production of that. And we have a wonderful staffer who um, is making these films now in house, and he just has the eye and the ability to talk with the subject. So those are all on our website, and I mm. encourage people to you to go there uh, to the victimsofcommunism.org website. And there's also a YouTube station you can sign up for. And I've heard from numerous teachers, both high school level and even college professors, that they've used them in the classroom to great effect. So they're, you know, they're in that, that as I said, you know, 10 minutes plus or minus. So it's, it's something where we were really thinking we don't want to get too long, but we want to tell a story. Are there, are there any in particular that stand out to you personally? Well, that's tough. It's tough to pick. I I do I do think that in terms of something that that especially a young person will then see where this person the the subject really didn't have any idea what he was escaping to and was willing to overcome whatever he had to. There's one about a North Korean. I'm probably mispronouncing it because I always do, but um, Jung Si Ho and and he. Uh, some people know his story because he got highlighted at a State of the Union address a few years back. But he uh, was starving. He was starving, and in trying to get some coal in order to sell it to help feed his family, he fell off a train sort of in between and he ended up having to have his leg amputated and of course in in north korea in a not so good uh, medical situation there was no anesthesia and so he then had he was even more of a quote-unquote burden on his family after that because he couldn't work the same way he had before and so he ends up escaping on a crutch that his father had fashioned for him and it's just an extraordinary story, and I won't tell people anymore because the video captures um, his story. And today he's in South Korea, and he fights for freedom overall, and he fights for those in North Korea who aren't free still. 
Well, that's that's such an incredible story. You often get uh, stories like that of North Koreans who have made it out. Just the process of getting out alone is the stuff of Hollywood. And they they also know the least. You know, when you think about, I'm I'm impressed by all the stories. Right? It's it's just inspiring when you think about somebody who swam through shark infested waters or who burrowed under you know a a barbed wire fence or what, whatever they did to get away. But some of those people. Especially if they were in Eastern and Central Europe, they would have probably, likely, have had access to radio, and and they would have listened to things like Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. You know, maybe even in Cuba, they would have heard the radio, you know, Radio Marti or something. But but it's it's for North Korea, it it is <laughs> it's a prison, right? The, yeah. If we're going to say that the the island of Cuba is a prison, which it is, then that whole part of the peninsula is a prison, and they really do block off a. a a lot, right? So people、mm. just know less. They still want to get away. They still want to. <laughs> they still want to escape. There's still something in us, right? As、uh, human beings, that they are showing. I used to work for NK News as the U.S. correspondent. Yeah, I think that even without knowing what it's like on the outside, you just. I think North Koreans just know that it's got to be better than this, <laughs> whatever、right. it is. And even if it isn't, <laughs> I'm willing to take the chance and.、Uh, You know, just anything it has got to be better. It's inspiring in a way, but it's also really depressing, of course. Yes, it's both. It's both, and that's something that in all of our projects. So something like the Witness Project videos. There's sometimes a sadness in some of them, as well as the you know, cue the music, let it swell. This is great. What somebody was able to achieve after they got away, for example.、Hmm. Uh, but there is always going to be that sober. Element to it too, and and that comes out certainly that comes out in the reports that VOC puts out.、It、comes out in our museum too. Do you also follow up with them for not just their life before and their transition or escape, but what happens to them after? Or do we?、Um, yes. Yes. yes.、So We, to the extent that we can, and some of them are not brand new, so we don't, you know, we don't do updates. Although I suppose we could at some point. But if there's an after story, we try to tell it. So one of the more recent ones is on Yoakum Gauk, and that's another. I mean, all of the stories are extraordinary. But he、um, he was one of the pastors. He was a Lutheran pastor in in East Germany. And he's one of those ones that you know started with a Bible study, started with what he said in sermons, and it inspired people, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and the communists kept trying to shut him down, and and it's one of those people power stories that's so important to how civil society, the communists tried to crush it, and and couldn't in the end in certain places, in, in very much in in Eastern and Central Europe, and the viewer finds out. That he、uh, he ends up as president of Free United Germany. <laughs> so there's very much an after story there. <laughs> Are the after stories、uh, generally positive because they're leaving communist states and they're hopefully ending up in in free democracies? Right, they are generally positive. Although one of our newer ones on, and you can imagine this on、um, a Uyghur, you know, she loses family. She's still you know, her sister. It, this is all. It, there's again this very sober, sad quality to that one. And I would still say, I don't know if I'd show it to middle school and younger, but I would, I would definitely still、uh, show it to high school, and and have the conversation about what this means when your family. You're separated from your family that way. Yeah, that is. It's one of the great ongoing horrors of the world today. 
the situation in Xinjiang, something that I've covered as a journalist and have had contacts, have had them disappear on me, and I, I don't know. I don't know where they are. And, and, and family and friends don't know where they are, and you can only speculate. And, of course, you, uh, it's, it's not unreasonable to speculate the worst. Exactly. Exactly. VOC has been very dedicated and out in front, so to speak, on this. We are very fortunate to have as our senior fellow in China Studies, Dr. Adrian Zenz, and one of his areas of specialty is Xinjiang and the Uyghurs. And so um, I would encourage people to go look at the, um, the Xinjiang police files if they haven't had a chance to. Have you seen those? Yes, I, I had yeah. the honor of yeah. uh, interviewing him once, and uh, he's uh, incredibly, I mean, he's, he's just encyclopedic and also uh, very polite, pleasant to talk to. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he is. He is all that. And he is so careful. He is documenting everything. VOC is so proud that we've got not only the data and the reports that he's doing for the foundation, but then also he will do academic, you know, scholarly article versions. And so he's being published all over the place. And and truly part of the reason that the United States and other countries and organizations around the world have designated what's going on in Xinjiang as a genocide is in, you know, part, a big part to Zenz's work on this. So it does show, if each witness video shows what one person can do, it also shows the difference that one person can make on the, on the shining a light on its side of it, right? No doubt. But on that note, with the rise of China's power and, and uh, attendant influence and uh, social media, I find that with my work, and I know that I'm not the only one, there's, there's so many more voices these days who are either Chinese nationalist or allies, uh, as you might say. And there's, there's a lot of rhetoric of people who will say, what are you talking about? Uh, there's, there's not only is there no genocide in Xinjiang, but their population has increased. And look at this video I found on Twitter where they're all dancing in the sun. I mean, it's nicer over there than it is in Cancun. This is ridiculous. And because I have covered China, I, I'm exposed to a lot of this kind of discourse all the time on my social media feeds. And also I, you know, I interact with people who are it uh there's nothing to see here at all if anything uh the chinese government is um is helping the Uyghurs and etc etc and, et cetera, et cetera. and mm -hmm. you know so what is the from your perspective what is the response there ignore it and move on just put out the good info to combat the bad info or engage them or <laughs> what uh for, right, right. yeah I think we need to do a variety of things, as you're asking in your question. And then we also have to remember that from the get-go, disinformation has been part of what communism does. It's part of what totalitarianism does overall, right? Mm. The Nazis did it too. Mm. But communism is built on lies. And if you read some of the most profound statements from people who know from the inside, somebody like an Alexander Solzhenitsyn or a Vaclav Havel, they, each of them, and Havel, you know, credits Solzhenitsyn since he preceded him. But each of them wrote about about the the centrality of the lie and then how people have to resist it. So, you know, we need to make sure that we keep calling out the lies, those of us who live in the free world, right? And we're going to call it the free world. Uh, people may have forgotten what the free world in the West were, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that war on Ukraine has has made these phrases come back. I don't have to explain them so much to students anymore. They now have heard of free world and the West. 
But in any event, call out the lie. Keep talking about the facts. Keep getting the information out there and know that this is not new. What's new is how the media is set up, right? The, the spread of technology, you know, it's now not just uh, refuting what was put into a newspaper or what was on radio or even what was on TV and then what was on cable. It's now, it's now so much more. But it doesn't mean that people who um, stand for truth and freedom are going to give up. We have to still call out the lies and say it's all based on lies. So I would say with respect to um, what you're facing especially, but, you know, reporting on on an area like Xinjiang and the people, what's going on with the Uyghurs to them, is narrowly what's going on there, and then say, but this is this is emblematic of what the Chinese Communist Party does overall. Everything they everything they're saying is based on a lie, and here's an example of that, and here's an example of that. And then if you're called to this, you can't give up. It's mm-hmm. it's a long fight, right? It, it's it's something where we don't know that there will be a collapse. I mean, I you know, gosh, don't we really hope for the equivalent of the of the fall of the Berlin Wall? in China and and North Korea and Cuba and Vietnam and Laos and don't I wish I could get in the time machine and fix Venezuela and Nicaragua places that I can't believe you know are having to fight all this stuff for different reasons for some of them but the same kind of lies right and just keep doing it and I know that's not that's not easy that's not easy and and we need honest journalists as part of this Um, and so you're to be commended for what you're trying to do because I think some people look at that and they say, "Oh, it's so messy," and they don't want to get they don't want to get involved, and they they realize it's not going to be a, a one time story. Talk about a continuing story, mm. um, right? And then there's a legacy piece uh, that you have to keep track of too. And for China, it's still current, you know, current. But if one day it's not communist anymore, boy, they're going to be digging out for a long time, right? From having been a communist regime. And then you look at the current politics, you know, take, for example, Russia. Um, Some people want to say, oh, the way Putin and company are acting only has to do with Russian history. And I'm not saying Russian history doesn't have anything to do with it. But if you don't understand the Soviet piece and the legacy of that, then you can't understand either what's going on. You cannot understand what Russia is trying to do. No, indeed, I agree. I never intended or tried to have a focus on communism as a journalist, but I did go from North Korea, China. I ended up writing about, I have a family, my, my father's side is a Russian-Ukrainian, so then of course I was, uh, I wrote some pieces covering what was happening in Ukraine when that came out, and this through line started to emerge in my work where it was very much, I, I just couldn't seem to get away from communism. And then I, uh, I don't know if you're aware, but then I it got involved in a situation in the States where I took a position in Seattle and I ended up writing a piece about, um, there's a statue of Vladimir Lenin in Seattle. And I, I wrote about this and I uh, got into a conversation on Twitter about it and the whole thing like blew up and I got, I guess, quote unquote, canceled. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, I was I was comparing the psychopathologies of uh, Hitler and Lenin and and arguing that Lenin was uh, essentially a, a psychopath. And it, it was again, it was it was communism, even though the position itself had nothing to do with, you know, with uh, with that at all. Uh, what was interesting is that in the aftermath of that, there were a a surprising number of people who 
came out of the woodwork, as it were, to quite furious that I had that I had dared to criticize. Well, the, some people would say, you know, um, who cares about the statue? It's just a joke anyway. Don't take it so seriously. And and my response was, well, you know, there are people who, myself included, who had ancestors who feel differently when they see a statue of Vladimir Lenin standing in the middle of the, uh, the land of the free. And then the second group of criticism would be, how dare you criticize the greatest man who ever lived? And I wanted to in- introduce the first group to the second group and be like, you guys you guys should talk it out because uh, <laughs> there seems to be a misunderstanding here. But that brings me to my question, which is, you know, I, I was brought face to face with a with a really troubling um level of of vitriol with in defense of lenin as there, there there just seems to be what i would call a kind of like highly educated maybe maybe upper middle class white liberal uh romanticism with figures like lenin as this uh, like his 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 mythology has not been completely uh, undone in the way that for instance there is no such mythology with Hitler unless unless you're a neo unless you're literally a neo Nazi, right? But you could be like a Berkeley grad, uh, fair from a fairly you know well centered family, and 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 walk around in a Che Guevara t shirt and think that Vladimir Lenin was a really cool guy. That's something that I think that we haven't really come to. We haven't sort of like figured that one out in America, and I mm-hmm. and I sometimes wonder. Why? What is what is the? Uh, I have a few theories, but do you have any uh, insight into why our analysis of these two evils is so lopsided and why it's so, uh, I guess, chic to yeah. to like Lenin or or people don't usually they'll usually draw the line at Stalin and they'll say, okay, he wasn't he wasn't a great guy, but uh, Lenin's the good communist. Yeah, yes. even, even though I think you know, um, uh, Molotov famously said, compared to compared to Lenin, Stalin was a baby lamb. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, in fact, I was gonna I was gonna reference Molotov. So good for you that you already know that. Um, I don't. It's not one reason. So some of it is rooted in ignorance, truly. Right. So we've got we've got a couple of different fronts here where when you're talking about somebody like Lenin, that is ancient history to so many people, especially Americans, right? Mm. And so when I talk to student groups um, through VOC or when I'm teaching, I'm teaching right now, I'm teaching mostly MA students, graduate students, but I've taught undergrads for many, many years too. So anyway, for all of them, even if they're interested in learning more about the topic, um, it's all ancient history. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we've got we've got to remember that 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 we you and I might know that reference to Molotov, but we can go ahead and use that over and over again, right? Uh, so so we've got to fix that. We've got to teach. We've got to teach. But then there is also, uh, as you said, why is it chic um, for some people to say that that if they want to say Lenin was the the, the good communist? why there's some sort of attraction there. Again, some of it's ignorance. I doubt they've really studied Lenin, both what he what he said and wrote as well as what he did. Yeah. But but also there's something where oh gosh, the the academy in uh, probably in the west, but especially in the United States has gone ahead and drawn some sort of line 
and is it because if the totalitarianism is on the left then then it might be associated with them in some remote way i don't know that i don't Mm. know um i don't know that it's intentional um i do know if you look at the way um the study of history politics and some other subjects developed in the united states that there was a real break in in the some of it started in the late 50s but really in the 1960s with the new left and there was you know like a neo marxist infusion into especially the the discipline of history so you know all this stuff that that now people will bring up critical theory critical theory um that that was developing on its merry way too but some of this stuff that was actually a neo marxist view was trying to be quite dominant in main disciplines like history. And so it doesn't it doesn't totally take over, but it ends up affecting enough and then also the scholars who end up espousing that view, they themselves taught many students who end up being academics and some of those academics taught more students, okay. right? right? And so then you carry this on and so it ends up in the the academy overall and it ends up in colleges and universities. And then for some of the students of those people, you know, those various academics, they might not end up there. They might end up even in high schools, right? So you think about the difference between in public schools, um, a high school teacher teaching history now who might have gone through that kind of, you know, education (laughs) versus his counterpart of 30 or 40 years ago who would have been educated by different professors in college and or grad school. And so that kind of thing goes on. And I don't think people really know that. I don't, I don't think they realize that. And then I think we pair it with, do you still read books? I hope you do, but yes, so so many people don't (laughs) don't read now. They don't, you know what I mean? They don't go look for things. They don't want to find out about, they're not, there's even a lack of curiosity, let's just call it that. Yeah. But, but also they're not, they're not continuing to educate themselves. They're not using that amazing tool, the brain, to, to learn more and to find out more and to then talk about it and say, okay, what does that mean? And so, uh, so much of what we're doing now seems to be locked into rigid understandings of things without people even having gone through reading, like, like, Uh, you know you can't get away from communism and in making the museum some stuff i was going back to i hadn't read or thought about since grad school some stuff was actually new to me i was glad that i was learning new stuff but it's you know it's like all communism all the time and i'm thinking to myself people don't know that so and so said that or this and that happened at this time for to put it back in a voc context we're um we have visiting exhibits in one of our halls and uh, the one that's finishing up this week is on Václav Havel, who, you know, should be a household name, isn't, though, anymore, and, and was at some time, you know, right? Um, and then our next um, visiting exhibit that will start in early October is on the Holodomor. Hmm. So if you say Holodomor to people that, you know, are not your friends who know what you work on and maybe you had some conversations with and maybe they right. read on their own, how many people are gonna have even heard the word? I've had people. I've used the word and had people ask me, "What's that?" And I'm like, 
oh, it's only one of the greatest atrocities in human history. I mean, <laughs> and that's a human rights atrocity. So, so let me give you one more example on this. We have these amazing witnesses that VOC, you know, has talked to student groups or teachers who are then going to. We, we teach the teachers at VOC. We have a national teacher seminar. And one of them, Chani Lau, she survived uh, the killing fields. And her testimony is extraordinary. And every time she gives it, I can't believe, I've heard her four or five times. It is is gut-wrenching for her, but she feels like this is part of what she is meant to pass on, what she is meant to transmit. We already have a certain level on both sides on the right and on the left, of anti-establishmentarian sort of grievance culture, which is a lot of it is warranted. Maybe some of it is not. But the point is, when you have that much anti-institutional sentiment, it opens the door for other things. And if you already have this level of of pro-communist, pro-Leninism I think that could be dangerous. And, I, and so I guess I, uh, my question is, you know, what do we, how significant do you perceive that threat to be? Or is it n- not, not that big a deal? Uh, and if you do think that it's serious in your work, do you notice any historical through lines or patterns that can be applied of, of societies that are in these early stages and, and what's to be done and, and what steps are to be taken? All right. Oh, gosh. Big question. So we're in the trenches. We're, we're looking at the worst of the worst examples all the time. And we do have to remember that. It doesn't mean that, that things aren't bad, but, but we've got we've to make sure that we're putting everything into proper perspective. And um, I think having, especially in conversation with other people and talking about a country like the United States and what it's based on. And it doesn't mean we've always been perfect in our implementation of it, but the principles were based on, the institutions were based on, the rights were based on. Um, all of that so important to talk about, to talk about very fluidly and normally in conversation, uh, because I find that, that a lot of people don't think that way anymore. Right? They don't think about some of the simplest stuff about about what the United States is based on and its institutions and the you know the fact that uh, Tocqueville called it you know mediating institutions, but the fact that we have a civil society that is separate from the state, all of this kind of stuff needs to be talked about. Rule of law, right? And that none of that is in communism. And if you want, if you think you're a Leninist, then that means you're signing up for getting rid of. You know, and then give examples what that means, um, including the First Amendment, very much so, right? Mm, and yeah. so, so I think I think it's important to to make the positive argument in a substantive way for the 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 meaning and guts of freedom in opposition to, in this case, since we're talking about communism, you could say totalitarianism overall, and show. The one to one, right? And how? And look, they are—they really are in opposition. Um, when I'm teaching, I I will often use, and I'm I'm a Truman uh, scholar, so I've I've written on Harry Truman and his Cold War thought. And uh, but anyway, if you go back to the, the what became quickly known as the Truman Doctrine speech in March of of 1947. 
he has a passage in there which was very central to writing and he um, himself in the drafts of the the speech where it talks about alternative ways of life two ways of life and he just goes through one way of life and then it's it's you know he's talking about what we have right in the west especially in the united states the other and then he doesn't say communism by name but it's clear what he's talking about so if you just talk about it in that in that terms of juxtaposition and then appeal to to reason in your interlocutor i mean some of this has to be person by person conversation by conversation and then you hope families are having these conversations friends are having these conversations you can get it into schools at voc we talk with people from all different types of schools you know they're bringing in school groups to see the museum and right now it's probably still more private religious and charter than public but we really we encourage everybody to come right and you have to do though that that juxtaposition so that people see if they're going to choose communism if they're going to choose marxism if they're going to choose marxism leninism if they're going to say hi i'm a leninist then at first at least they need to know what they're saying right <laughs> mm. and then and then you go from there but but it's a it's very labor intensive to have all those kinds of interactions and conversations and you've got to keep writing yeah so sunshine is the best disinfectant in other words to a degree i i do think i mean i i would be sitting around depressed every day if i didn't believe that i yeah. do believe it is so very important and and we are we are an educational nonprofit. That's mm. what VOC is. I mean, we do, we've got the research going. We've got the, you know, we're for human rights, all that kind of stuff. At the bottom, we are an educational. Everything we're doing is radiating from the, um, the museum and the curriculum and the witness project videos and, and then the, the kinds of research and reports that somebody like Zenz is doing. All of that is to, from, from the point of we've got to educate. Um, and we're anti, I mean, you know, we're anti-communists, we're anti-totalitarian, so we want people to make up their own minds. Now, when I, when somebody leaves the museum and goes back out, it's on McPherson Square, when they, when they leave and they walk out on the street, would I like, would I like my, the, the target 10th grader to say, oh, I don't want that here. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I don't want them to say, okay, now. I really, I really want all this. I want them. I want them to see the real history, to see the real facts, mm. to see that it's a pernicious ideology, and that that's that's what radical ideology does. Yeah, I uh, I used to teach uh, debate and logic at the university level, and so I'm a I'm a strong believer in logic and debate. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm also a student of psychology, and I know that a lot of people don't sit down and, and carefully reason their ways to their conclusions. I did recently have an inspiring interview with a brilliant young woman named um, Talia, who her um, experience was that she was about as far left as you could be, and she's now she no longer is. And when I asked her what was what made the change. It was exposure to public debates where people were putting their best arguments forward, and it's and and yeah, it was it was sunlight. It was sunlight was the disinfectant. I found that to be so inspiring because I had started to feel that like maybe 
you know, maybe people are just so locked in their positions. And, and no, actually, you do get th- maybe you don't get through to 100 at a time or 1000 at a time, but you do get through uh, these right. these well made arguments, they do reach people, and it does make a difference. And that's, uh, I found that uplifting. But anyway, to the point of the of the actual uh, name of the foundation, Victims of Communism. So do we have a grasp of the of the number of victims of communism? Because I've seen different attempts to estimate that and to assess that in different ways. Right, right. It's tough. Um, and, and the communists have not always kept good records. Right. So, so you, that's, you know, you have to do a range because you don't always know. Um, but um, if you're talking about just killed, just killed, then it's well over 100 million at this point, And it keeps growing. Mm-hmm. They're still killing people. Um, and and we are um, pretty firm on that, and you can see in VOCs, um, on, like on the website, in, in the museum, how we get to, to such a number. And what interests me, and you would, you know, you probably have studied some of this too, like the numbers for China only keep growing. Like many, many years ago, Mao by himself would only get... I don't know. They would give them like 10, 20, maybe 30 million. Now it's in the upper 40s, maybe over 50 million just for Mao Zedong. So so these numbers are never going to be revised downward, right? They're only ever going to go up um, as more information comes out, mm-hmm. as, um, right. as archives um, uh, become available. Um, and so, uh, I mean, the numbers for Lenin and Stalin each have gone up over the years too. So the killed number is a big part of how we talk about victims of communism. But at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation and also at the museum, we're also trying to convey that people have been victimized in various ways, even if they survived communism. and Or if they died in a communist state in the past, but they didn't die in a gulag um, or the Lao guy or whatever it's called in another country, because, you know, all these communist countries have their own versions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to convey that if somebody didn't get to to say their thoughts, right, didn't get to worship, didn't get to assemble, didn't get, you know, all the things we take for granted again, right, then they were made a victim of communism too, right? Because if they, if, if you take you take these countries, they would have been able to do it if they hadn't been communist. And um, so that's that's part of a larger count of the victims of communism, that people, even people who uh, didn't get to do what they would have chosen in terms of their education and their careers, right? They end up doing something different. That makes them a victim, too. Now, some of that, you know, contingencies of life can ha- can happen anywhere in any circumstance, but but here in communism... It's it's state made. It's imposed by the party. It's it's entirely what they've made up and 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 imposed on people. So for for the museum at least, uh, I have two big or we have two big numbers that um, are right there in the lobby, and then people see when they they go through, um, and it ends with it too before they go back out into the lobby that it's more than one hundred million that have been killed by communism and more than 1.5 billion forced to live under communism, mm. still living under communist regimes. Mm. So, you know, it's it's more, than, conservatively, more than 100 million that have been killed 
that are victims of communism, Mm -hmm. and then billions more that have been victimized over 100 years now. Wow. Um, Yeah. Um, When having these conversations, invariably, I find critics will raise objections that take different forms, one of them being the double genocide theory or the idea that, that there's something almost like trivializing the Holocaust or, or even people will claim uh, anti-Semitic or, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple different variations of the argument that basically it sort of goes back to what I was saying about Lenin. Like you can't, you can't criticize too harshly. Otherwise it implies that you're somehow not criticizing something else harshly enough. Anyway, I I think you've probably encountered these arguments uh, more times than you can count. What is your, what is your response to the uh, things like the double genocide theory? Genocide is bad. All genocide is bad. All totalitarianism is bad. So I think we start with the the general point and then we work our way into the specifics and the facts of it. And so if if people are are thinking that somehow to be anti-communist against against the genocides that have been very much part of the overall democide done by totalitarianism, in this case, communist totalitarianism, um, means that somehow you are in favor or you're, you're, you're negating a different genocide. That, that's not, you, you just said you've taught debate and whatnot. I mean, it, that's not logical. That's not logical. We're, we're against all genocide. Um, and, mm. and sometimes the genocide is motivated by different things, right? So what the Nazis did was motivated by a bundle of things. What the communists did and do is motivated by a bundle of things, but it's all genocide. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think I think part of that is talking about what the terms mean. Um, and then, I mean, this is where I find, I don't know if you've ever looked at R.J. Rummel's work. Um, he's deceased now. He was an academic in Hawaii. And some people don't like looking at his work on on um, uh, genocide of all types and and government killings of all types because they say he inflated numbers and his numbers may not all be correct but his numbers are probably in the end going to be more correct than the ones that underestimate everything um Mm. and want to say that it didn't happen uh so anyway he he coined a term democide so it's it's murder by government overall including genocide and i think i think that's a helpful term to use too with people because genocides included but you look at what communists have done over the course of a century plus, and it's been different ways of killing people, right? It hasn't always been genocide. Mm. Um, but gosh, they do it over and over again. And it, yeah. it sure looks similar, even if sometimes the particular tools are different. But it sure looks similar from from communist country to communist country. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that question myself when I was looking at some of the numbers uh with regard to the soviet union and just so much death that isn't genocide and and that and that however you try to capture that death in words even if the number of dead far exceeds uh any genocide you can think of Nothing is going to have the power of the word genocide in in current political discourse. That's just that word genocide is just I mean, there's there's really there's there's not much else that compares to it in terms of um, of the of what it evokes, which shows we've educated better on 
the Nazi Holocaust than we have on other totalitarian uh, genocide. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. Um, and 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 that's where you need to have the witnesses out there and everything. With the the perhaps maybe I'm just being trying to be optimistic here. The positive side, you know, a lot of the people who survived the Holocaust, the how many are left? This is like this is like tracking the remaining World War II veterans, right? You've got mm-hmm. even the youngest who survived the Holocaust are old-ish now, right? Um, so so you're losing your your witnesses, um, and you got to make sure you get them um, recorded and and otherwise documented. For for communism, the other horrible ism, the other big totalitarianism um, of modern history, the you have so many witnesses who are still alive. So that means VOC shouldn't be the only place. Lots of us should be documenting as much as we can, um, getting their stories, getting interviews with them, putting them on podcasts and in documentaries and our mini documentaries like we're doing in the Witness Project. Um, we have we uh, VSU recently started a podcast, so we're doing more interviews with with witnesses that way. Um, and and I think this is this is important. I, it's crucial. It's crucial because uh, the some people won't believe it unless they hear it from somebody that seems like they actually went through it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a different generation, and we're getting older every day. <laughs> right. Like I've even I've even suggested to VOC, I'll say to the staff, I'll say, are you prioritizing? I'm not trying to be morbid here, but I'm, are you prioritizing by age some of these witness project videos and podcasts that you want to do? Because you don't know, you know, somebody's going to be there next year or three years from now on mm. your your master list. Wow, yeah, that's something to think about. Have you read um, a century of of horrors by Besson? No. So that's a that's a pretty slim book, um, and he covers both um, both Holocaust and communism in it. Uh, and I don't he's brilliant. I don't like you know I hate to start. I don't agree with it entirely. <laughs> there might be a couple of things in it where I'm like eh, don't agree with that. But overall, that is such an important um, book on some of what we've been talking about. I'll read it. Thank you. You're welcome. Definitely. Yeah, I do feel that the. There's the yeah the, the the distance in age that you describe and and how that's different with communism. I, I mean right I mean right now you know with with China being this this uh, looming power. Although I, I suppose there's some reasons to believe that they might be peaking, but nevertheless their influence is vast. And you compare that with some other um, horrors of history, and they're they're fading fast, and we have to get these things down. I mean I was talking to someone recently about uh, some of these issues and. And the person said to me, they referenced my age by saying, well, you were born in the 1900s. And I was like, what? What do you mean? And I was like, I was like, oh, oh, my God, you're right. You were born in the 20th century, so you were born in the 1900s. You were born in the 90s. I was like. It brings up an interesting uh, point. A lot of the high school and college students now they might have parents who are younger, but a lot of their parents are people who were young growing up, whether they were in college themselves or younger, um, in the Reagan era. And so I find that some of those students, even if they don't know as much, they've absorbed some from from parents who remember things like like a Reagan 
or a John Paul II or whoever fought communism, right? Um, a Thatcher. And, and then they remember, if they don't necessarily remember who the Soviet uh, premiers were at the time, but they, and then didn't somebody die and somebody else died? And then you've got Gorbachev. You're right. They might know this kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so, so maybe that's something to build on yeah. where, where they seem more open to learning uh, the history at least. And then you can build from there on, on helping them to be, uh, see the merits of being anti-communist. <laughs> Right. Final question before I let you go. Uh, but uh, on a personal note, what drives or inspires you to do the work that you do? I, I'm sure it can't be uh, uplifting all the time. It's a very dark subject. But as as you just highlighted, there are uh, there is a, there there are inspiring aspects to it. What uh, I guess what got you into it and what keeps you going? Right. That's that's an excellent question. Um, it is. It's very hard. It's very hard, and I, I I keep wondering why there are not more really good comedies to to help leaven it. I'm like, you know, for movie night, I keep saying to my family, "Where's where's the funny movie? Where's the really funny movie?" Uh, so so it it can be tough. Um, the so I'm a third generation anti communist. Uh, I don't have anybody directly. I mean, I know people. Um, outside the family who escaped communism, but it didn't, it didn't, it's not the reason that, that my family on either side came to America. But I grew up in a household where I, I read all the time. And, and so at some point, you know, in that, that, what do we call it now? The tween period, I started on all of the World War II books, both fiction and nonfiction. And then that led me to anti-communism books and there were not as many you know for every for every diary of Anne Frank or when Hitler stole Pink Rabbit there's not there's not enough stuff on on the anti-communism side there there needs to be some uh some good young adult what we call young adult novels now mm. written based um and I would encourage anybody who wants to write fiction there's 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 some good stuff um one of my um fellow alumni she she and I were I think we were just about the same year at Hillsdale undergrad, she writes young adult fiction on this subject. Um, she's written on a couple of different things, but I'm just looking home. Let me look on the shelf here. One of her, it might be her newest book that's out. It's called I Must Betray You. And it's a young adult novel set in um, Romania in 1989. And it is gripping. It is wow. gripping. And she conveys a lot of the history, right? Okay. Um, so anyway, I didn't have a book like that when I was growing up, but I read everything I could read. And then coming through our home, um, and I thought for a while it was normal, and then I realized at a certain point it wasn't, um, we had a lot of dinner guests who had escaped communism. And I mm. heard all these different stories, and they were all inspiring and moving. And wow. then I studied um, you know, politics, undergrad, and in graduate school at University of Virginia, and I was interested in the Cold War and communism, and I wanted to write about about Reagan, but my um, for my my dissertation. But my advisor said it's it's there's not archival stuff yet. You can't do it. Why don't you go back and look at Truman? And I had already done my first archival research had been had actually been on Truman 
for for my dad who went back to school at night to do his his uh, PhD and so he was writing about it more from the Congress side of things but I had, I had actually been to um, the Truman Library as a high schooler and so when I got to grad school I was like okay I'll go look at Truman um, and so from you know a teaching perspective I taught many I have taught many different things but I've always along the way taught things that touch on communism too whether it's like teaching the American presidency or US foreign policy or whatever you get you know you're gonna end up talking about some history and the Cold War and and then you get into the ideology and what it all meant right and what it still means so I didn't realize that when I was building an academic career that it would all lead toward getting onto the board of VOC. And then I joined the board. I was invo- involved. And the um, and then several years ago, the museum possibility came up. And VOC is a small, uh, like I put, you know, told you, nonprofit. And there was nobody. They didn't have enough money. They didn't have enough money to do the museum. And the way that it was being done with the um, the design teams, there were there were errors. And so finally, I was asked, you know, will you help? And it was COVID. And so my COVID project <laughs> was making a museum. And I left where I had been teaching for a long time because it had changed and it, you know, it wasn't worth staying anymore. So I threw myself into this project of, of making the museum. And it, and I had always been a committed anti-communist, but it reminded me again about why this is so important um, in and of itself and for the victims of communism, but also to educate and to pass on so that all generations understand the real history, the ideology, the legacy piece like we talked about earlier, and then, you know, what's true and not true and why we need to, why we need to fight for what's true, what's true and, and that, you know, freedom Freedom is something that we're supposed to have. So, um, and then on a very personal note, my father is one of the founders of the Victim of Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, and so it's been very special. He's still alive. It's been very special um, to uh, to do things with him while he's uh, still here, and and he's um, uh, the founding chairman of the organization and. Uh, you know, a chairman emeritus, a couple before me. Uh, so, so that makes it special that way too. And it was my, my mother at a brunch who, you know, like on a Sunday after church, who said to my dad, um, well, you know, people are forgetting about communism and there should be some way to remind people. And that's how it all started. He, uh, he took out the napkin from under his coffee cup and wrote down Vic Com. <laughs> And it went from there. Lee Edwards. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is a very beautifully said and rousing answer to my question. Thank you. A a beautiful, beautiful note to end on.